Hallelujah. Open in your Bibles once again to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Hallelujah. Praise God. Glory to God. I know my family must have thought maybe I was in a bad mood this afternoon. Really just kind of quiet. And just the assignment on me tonight. You know, not weighing on me, but heavy on me in a good way. And uh, I'm not expecting it to be somber or anything. I'm wanting to be inspirational. But uh, if I could endeavor to convey the essence of what's living in my heart is the importance the Spirit of God is endeavoring to get over to His children. that He will do great things for you. And He will do great things through us if we will pray. If we will pray. And uh, amen. And so let's bow our heads before the Father and do that and pray. Father, we ask you to be involved with us tonight. I just yield myself to you and to your spirit as a vessel. To you, of course, and you alone. And I ask God that you would just think through my mind and speak through my spirit. Help me to unveil and utter that which you would want to convey and get in and get on my words, Father. And may they be eaten and gladly received by those that hear. God, just like as I've been reading the book of Ezekiel, you commanded him, take the scroll, eat it. It was sweet like honey in his mouth and it got down in his innermost being. Father, thank you. Your word is food for us. And as many times as we've been in this setting, people that have been with me a long time, that God, it's not boring to us. It's not old hat to us. This is your word. And so we come ready and eager to lay hold of it and to not just say amen to it, but to let it move us to change. I thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Praise God. So in Ephesians chapter 6, without reading all 18 or 19 of these verses, or 8 or 9, if you were to begin like we did last week and start in verse 10, Paul gets ready to conclude his letter to the church at Ephesus. And he says, finally, my brethren, be strong. Amen. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And he goes on and begins to talk about putting on the whole armor of God for a very critical reason. Because it is the armor of God that's going to enable us individually and corporately to be able to stand against the wiles, that's the schemes and the strategies of the devil. Amen? And I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, not going to list all the armor of God, but I, I did feel impressed to go ahead and read again verse 12. And notice what he said. He said, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then he urges us again that we put on the whole armor of God so that we can be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. I felt prompted as we ministered to uh, say this, and uh, so I will. There have been several instances come up individually in church members' lives, where the devil uh, is has launched a strategy and a scheme against them in their workplace 
to intimidate them, to harass them, to persecute them, and the ultimate aim is to make things so uncomfortable for them that they quit or leave. And don't think this is not just about vaccination. That, that you could include that if that fits, but I'm, I'm really these other situations I'm talking about are unrelated to that. You know, a lot of the places where you live and where you work, and God is using uh, people's jobs right as a pipeline, as an avenue of blessing and financial support. And we are not to be run out and harassed. And, you know, we don't... Basically, what am I trying to say there? What can I do in the face of persecution? Well, we to the on the human side, we should love and bless and be integrous toward our human persecutors. How can I do that? Well, I, it's hard. If, it's hard to do that when you're going to do it if you're going to do it in the flesh. You got to do it in the spirit. You got to do it by the spirit. You got to live full of God. You got to live full of the love of God. Amen. And you, but you, it would help you to keep in mind what Paul said here. We don't wrestle. Our fight is not with them and their natural being. Amen. Our wrestling is with these demonic powers that they are wittingly or unwittingly yielding themselves to. In uh, Brother Hagin's book, The Triumphant Church, I believe we have that in the bookstore, uh, it's one of his meatiest books. And I don't have the page, but my, my copy falls open to this paragraph that I'm referring to. It's in the 100s. I'm going to say, if I got this right, if I'm speaking out of my heart, around page 117, there is a paragraph. Now, in this book, Jesus is relating a visitation, that Je- one of those visions where Jesus, the head of the church, appeared to him to teach him about demons, the devil, and demonic spirits and how to deal with them. And there is a paragraph in there. And in there, Jesus said to him, Now, son, tell my people, you do not have to have the gift of discerning of spirits in operation to know when some things are demonically inspired. To be able to diagnose that there's a demon at work here. There's an evil spirit at work through this person. You don't have to see. You don't have to have a word of knowledge. You don't have to be able to see in the spirit realm to discern that. Listen to what Jesus said. I won't be able to get exactly right. Uh, praise God. But he said, uh, he said, just know if anyone hinders embarrasses, intimidates, works to harass, make fun of, anything like that. He used several other more descriptive words. He said, you just know a spirit is behind that. You just know a a devil is behind that. And this is what he said to do. He said, remember that you don't have authority over another person a human, their will. But you have absolute dominion and authority over the spirit that that person is yielding to. So he said, teach and tell my people who are facing these kind of things. Say not to the person. Get off by yourself and say, 
you hindering, harassing spirit working through such and such against me. You cease and desist in your operations against me and against whatever in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, years ago, we took uh, leadership of the church. Our first Sunday was November 18th, 2001. And um, we had had a mentor that we were very grateful for, still are today, for the good things. He had moved to a different state. and Anyway, we had kind of had a falling out because I took a direction uh, for ministry preparation that he, he wished I'd have gone another way. And uh, praise God. And so anyway, long story short, he had an occasion to talk to me. I, I, I still had a genuine affection for him. I respected him. I called him to ask a, a doctrinal question one day. He answered it, and then he launched into this thing about, has God been talking to you? Has God been talking to you? I'm, no, no, not him. Not him. And he just kept on with that. God been talking to you. God been talking to you. So finally, after like the sixth time he brought this up, I said, well, pastors X, if you got something from the Lord, go ahead. Listen to what he said. Since you asked. Okay, since I asked. Since you asked. Then he proceeded to prophesy that Amber and I had missed it in coming here and taking this church. We were out of the will of God. Well, when those words were spoken, I literally bowed over physically and wanted to vomit out of my... I didn't, it didn't, sure didn't register with peace with me. I told my wife, she, and there was this ominous, dark cloud that moved in over our lives, mentally and emotionally in every way, and it lasted for two or three years. Now, without giving you all the details on that, he proceeded to write multiple... 13, 14, 12, 10-page letters warning me that if I didn't listen to him, that I could die, my children could die. It was fear, it was intimidation, it was manipulation, it was all kinds of very... And it went on and on. Our staff began to get emails. If I invited a guest speaker, he would uh, reach out to the guest speaker or write a letter to them telling them about what kind of fraud and dishonorable person I was. He tried to ruin my connection with any minister in the body of Christ for several years. It just the and the 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 intensity of the harassment I just cannot describe to you. Then to just describe all the invisible forces arrayed against my wife and I's mind, I, I cannot describe in words to you. Now around this time, Doctor Dufresne got in my life. He got in our life. He had come once and ministered to us. And as a prophet, began to undo the damage that this guy had begun to do in our confidence about our call and our current assignment. And we're very grateful for that. But the intensity of this harassment kept getting worse and worse. And in my anguish and desperation, I called up Dr. Dufresne one time. He answered the phone. And I told him about this situation. He was aware of it and all that was going on. And he basically said what, what I just related to you from Brother Hagin. That this is not natural. That there is a demonic strategy being worked through this person against you. 
And he just simply, he didn't shout. He didn't, he didn't say, thus saith the Lord, anything like that. He just said, now, I speak and I say to the harassing spirit that is working through minister X. You cease and desist in all your maneuvers against Pastor Cody and against Pastor Amber Cody in Jesus' name. Now, if, if the level of intensity of that harassment was 110, it went down to like 12. Immediately. And it never, it just petered out from that day. Now, how come, you say, how come it didn't go to zero? You still have the human to deal with. But you don't have the human able to work in cooperation with that demonic spirit anymore. And oh, how it worked is what I'm trying to say. I don't have permission to give you the details, so I won't, but I had a man come to my house, a member of my church, a brother in the Lord, and and uh, he began to describe to me the things that were going on in his professional environment. And I'm like, oh, I'm glad I, I'm glad I go to church to work every day, you know, and dealing with all of that. And um, I related this and prayed that prayer over him, and he's delivered. In, in his case, the corporation created a brand new job that didn't exist before in a different complete department just to stick him in it, and totally removed him from the influence of these other people. I want to remind everyone, we are not without defense. We are not without remedies. We have tremendous power at our disposal if we will learn how to use it. Now notice these these two illustrations. It involved prayer. It involved a form of prayer that we would simply call the exercise of spiritual authority. Those prayers were really not even addressed to God. But in the spirit realm, we take our place in Christ and we address not the person, the spirit behind that. And there's a lot of other scriptures the Spirit of God might quicken you about. No weapon. People trying to ruin your reputation. That scripture, if you learn to memorize the whole thing, Isaiah 54, 17, it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, thou shalt condemn. My favorite translation is the one that says that God will use your life to prove them wrong. What they said about you. So don't respond in the flesh when you get lied on. It's easy to. When people are conniving and scheming and, you know, conspiring together for your ruin. I care about my name. I care about the integrity of my name. And I needed these connections with other ministers and he flat slandered me to these men. I never... Spoke his name publicly. I've never done anything but pray for him and ask God to bless him and to help him. But I dealt aggressively. I've learned to deal aggressively like my spiritual father did with the devil that he was yielding to. Well, he's a pastor. How do you yield to a devil? 
It doesn't matter that you're born again. If you want to, you could yield, and many people do, to an evil spirit. And we need to learn the devil, he doesn't care that we're born again. If he can push us and influence us to get offended, to cooperate with him, to act dirty, to spread a rumor, he will do it. He will use you to hurt others if you let him. But for the, just if you're not dealing with it, just put it in your pocket, don't forget it. Amen. We are leaving, we're living in the last days, and as these things ramp up, I was reminded in the, reading the book of Revelation that during the ministry uh, of the two witnesses, as they stand in the streets of Jerusalem, the whole world wants to kill them. But God equal, He gives them power and anointing equal to the threat. And it says, if anyone wants to kill them by the sword, by the sword they will die. If they want to kill them by fire, by fire that one must die. That God gives these two witnesses during this time uh, the ability to call down fire from heaven and consume their enemies. He has the, they have the power to keep it from raining. I mean, whatever they say... It says by whatever means they're tried to be harmed, that means will destroy that person. So in the day of machine guns, can you imagine these two witnesses, da, 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 and the bullets go, U-turn, wham. That's, I'm talking about power. My subject tonight, in case you want to know, is the link between prayer and power. There is a link between prayer and power. Amen. Go with me to the book of James. Hallelujah. Let me, you know, why is the church, and when I say church mainly tonight, I'm talking about the church at large, especially here in America. Why is the church so irrelevant? Why is the church so weak? Well, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of sin in the church. There's a lot of lukewarmness in the church. There's a lot of false ministry in the body of Christ today. People who say they're something and they're not that. And currently, you know, there is a shaking going on. The Bible says, I think it's in Peter, one of his letters, that judgment must come first to the house of God. God always deals with His people first. And then He'll deal with the world. And... You know, for 20 plus years, I've watched, really, you know, I'm preferring primarily since Dad Hagen went to heaven, I've watched the church adopt all of these methods and all of these strategies to become relevant to the world, to identify with the world. The dumbing down of dress, what's that all about? Well, if you ask those preachers who get up behind their pulpits looking like a mess, looking sloppy, they'll tell you, and I'm not, I'm not, charging or judging their sincerity. But they'll tell you they're doing it because they want to relate to the people they're trying to win. Well, good for your sincerity. But you just keep taking that logic down that it doesn't fly. God set Israel among the nations to show His glory in Israel, to... Give them, give the world, the pagan world, an example of righteous living and what 
what can be had when God lives in the midst. And they were to look and be very different than everyone else. And without the, so the contrast was extremely important. Light is different than darkness. But when we make the mistake, I want to identify with you, so I'm going to look like you. Well, then you take away the contrast. Amen? Now, we want to invite and make very comfortable people who, to come in who don't look like us, don't think like us, don't believe like us. But we ought to be projecting something to them in a loving, non-judgmental way. We are different, and it's good. You're tormented, I'm not. You're defeated, I'm not. You're addicted, I'm free. I used to be addicted, but I'm not anymore. You look broke, I was broke, but I ain't broke no more. You've adorned yourself to tell the world that you hate yourself. That's why you've cut yourself, pierced yourself, stabbed yourself, tapped yourself, and all of this stuff. It's a cry for help. We don't look on them with judgment. We look on them with love, but they need to be able to see a difference. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost its flavor, its flavor, it's good for nothing. Just throw it out. And the church has lost its flavor in its sincere endeavor to look like the world. And in doing all of this, making worship a rock concert, and doing all that people have done, taking away the honor, taking away the reverence. A pastor is not a pastor anymore, he's a life coach. Or he's just Jack or Chris. You take away the honor. And everything becomes common. Then why would the world, they don't, we already look like them. Right? And, and in the process, the church had lost something very precious. We've dishonored God. In creating church services for the sole purpose of accommodating and pleasing and making people comfortable, we forgot to accommodate God. We forgot to come, that worship was meant to come to honor God, to worship God, to please God. And we can't just come into God's holy presence any old way any old condition, any old worldly mindset. So what we did is we brought, brought brass into the temple and traded and got the gold out and we lost the favor of God. We lost the tangible presence of God. We've lost the power of God. We lost miracles, signs and wonders. Amen. And so the church has got a long way back to come. To regain the preciousness of what we have lost. Amen. But we can and we should. And one of the core, fundamental, vital, foundational aspects of Christianity that is unpopular among Christians is prayer. I mean, I bet the dentist has you know, more success with root canal stuff than pastors are having success getting their people passionate or at all fired up about praying. 
Amen. And I'm not here to encourage you by whatever. I, I'm, not, I'm not here to browbeat you. Amen. But I just want to minister from God's Word. Let's go to James. You're in James 5. Let me get there. We need to go back and see the preciousness of prayer, the necessity of prayer, and what's connected to prayer. And there is tremendous power. You know, the power of God is at the disposal of the one who prays. You can wield the very power of the throne of God yourself by praying. By learning to tap into that power. Learning how to pray effectively. Amen. It's a very common verse. Uh, Not common, but uh, you know, people know it. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The effectual... So there's that word being effective, right? Fervent prayer. Amplified says heartfelt continued prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It availeth much. Amen? The New Living Translation. Let me give you some phrases from some different translation. The New Living Translation says the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. What produces wonderful results? The prayer of a righteous person. The prayer of a righteous person. The prayer of a righteous person produces wonderful results. The previous phrase says, it has great power. Amen. The Weiss translation says, A righteous man's prayer is able to do much as it operates. Hallelujah. James 5.16, of course, in the Amplified says that the prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous a power available, dynamic in its working. And and this has such far-reaching, almost infinite implications. You can wield God's power and assign it to a tumor, and that tumor will leave. You can, we can together assign it to a community and see the blinding work of the devil broken off the minds of sinners and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit return so that they might turn to God and be saved. You know, America has experienced... Revivals in, pre- in previous centuries that were so powerful and so pervasive in communities that all, all of the, the sin joints shut down for lack of business in these, all the liquor joints, all the strip clubs, all the places of ill repute. They just, they just shut down, not because the city made them, but because they lost all their customers. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. What's happening there is a combination of the uh, intercessory prevailing prayer of believers combined with bold preaching. Amen. And it's not just bold preaching that's going to get it done. It's going to be bold preaching that's backed by this power that comes into manifestation when we pray. Amen. Amen. The Moffat's translation says, The prayers 
of the righteous have a powerful effect. Now, there are some among us that are getting this. There are some among us that are getting this. And uh, I don't see them here tonight, but the Southard family. Uh, Miss Nikki, of course, their family is in Ohio. And uh, I'm not going to tell it all. I wouldn't be able to. I want, I want them to be able to tell it all. But a little bit of it is she suddenly, she was up here, she volunteers, cooks meals for our daycare kids. And so had to suddenly leave. Uh, they found her mother unresponsive. Had a pulse, whatever, but unresponsive. And they ended up medical flighting her uh, to a hospital. And she had multiple things wrong with her internally. Uh, they found a mass after testing. They found a significant uh, internal bleeding, damage to veins and arteries, different things. Uh, and I want them to give the full testimony. But, uh, Coventry, Coventry has been reading the children's books about God's generals. And she's been paying attention in services. And she went with her mom to Ohio, and they're, they're still there. And Tony texted me, he said, you believe my, my daughter, on the way out of the house, getting in the car, her words to the family were, there will be no doubt. There will be no doubt, God's got this. She's about this tall. She's about like Wigglesworth in the sense that she's a thousand times bigger on the inside than she is on the outside. And that was her prayer. Well, they're going to have to tell you everything that's happened, but he texts me back a few days later what the doctor's they, they met together the different physicians on the case. They do not have any natural medical explanation why she's alive. Where the tumor went, the growth went. How the bleeding stopped internally. Where all of the pooling blood went. And how her arteries and veins have been completely internally rerouted. It's, yeah. It's one of the greatest healing miracles that I've heard of in my in modern life, in my modern life. Think about Coventry and what she said. Think about these, these prayers, uh, what these things say. The earnest prayer of a righteous little girl has great power and produces wonderful results. A righteous man's prayer is able to do much as it operates. The prayers of a righteous man have a powerful effect. And the Weymouth translation says that these prayers exert a mighty influence. Praise God. Our, Our source of strength and power as Christians in these last days is in prayer. That's where it is. It is not in the political arena. It is not in the economic arena. We are going to be blessed 
right? You know, when we get strong enough, powerful enough, we will be able to say, we aren't putting up with that. We're all united in this community. And if you push that, we're going to shut you down. That kind of authority will come. It can happen. And the kind of wealth that will happen, the end time transfer, we could just say, you either, how much will it take for you to get this strip club out of here? We'll just buy it. How much do you want? But you leave this city and you never return. But that, how do we get to that point? We cannot, we'll never get to this kind of spiritual impact apart from seeking the face of God for a fresh daily touch of His hand of power upon our lives. And I know the flesh, the flesh wants to find some other way to have God's power. But there is no other Bible way to have power with God like this apart from prayer. Every great, we are going to lose the country if we don't have a mighty move of God. And we're not going to have a mighty move of God if the church keeps doing what it's been doing. If 90% of the body of Christ parishioners ignore their pastor's call to prayer meetings, we will lose the nation. You will lose your rights. You will lose your freedoms. You will have to, we will all as a society endure increasing levels of oppression. The persecution will increase. It doesn't have to. But if we stubbornly resist and keep our heels in the ground, I will do... Some people, there. I am happy to come paint the wall. I, am, I will come and trim the hedges, but I am not coming to prayer. The Lord gave me a strong statement today. Are you ready for it? Think about Ephesians 6. Think about the armor of God. Think about standing in the evil day, and the culmination is, verse 18, praying always. Think about that that context. The Lord seemed to impress upon me today that a brother or sister in Christ that is able, who refuses to come and engage with their local church's prayer effort, that is tantamount to abandoning a fellow soldier on the battlefield. That's what that is. You went AOL. You leapt out of your foxhole and you left the fight. You left your brother and sister to deal with and engage in spiritual warfare by by themselves. Amen. Now what did he say? He said, a brother or sister in Christ that is able. What does that mean? They're able physically. They're able with their time. But they won't. Amen. You're here in James, right? James chapter 4, verse 17. James chapter 4, verse 17. You know, it's not just me. Across the country, God is endeavoring to raise up strong voices of correction, calls to repentance, and warnings of judgment. And it's not coming from pulpits to the world. 
It's coming from pulpits and voices God's raising up to His church. Amen. Hallelujah. What does verse 17 say? It says, Therefore to him that knows to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And I don't think Christians are thinking about this right. So well, I'm doing right. I pay my tithes. You know, I serve a little bit. I obey the law. I'm a good person. But you know you should pray. You've heard your pastor's call to pray. And you can, but you don't. And to you it's sin. And Christians can sometimes be very bad at connecting the dots. Why won't God bless me? Why am I struggling with this? Why am I dealing with this? Why am I having these difficulties? Well, it may not be that you're doing something wrong. It may be that you are not doing something you know you should. You cannot define sin just by acts of wrongdoing. Some of the greatest sins Christians commit are not doing what they know they should. And as my spiritual father taught me, according to Ephesians 4.27, sin always opens the door to the devil. We should take stock. What do I know is right that I am not doing? And begin to make those changes. Hallelujah. (laughs) Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Think about where I should go. (laughs) Uh, Let's go over to Ezra. I'm not going to go too much longer. Ezra. Where is Ezra? Well, if you know where Chronicles is, it's right after 2 Chronicles. I think it's tucked in there between Ezra and, or excuse me, uh, 2 Chronicles and Nehemiah. You know, the Bible, uh, one of the ways you see the Bible is, the Bible is a book of cycles. And one of the things you can see both about the church and about God's people Israel is that they went through these cycles. They would go through long periods of bondage, and in their bondage, they would cry out to God. God would answer in His mercy and deliver them from bondage. And there would be a period of awakening and revival. They would be delivered from their enemies. They would begin to have victories and blessings that were lost would begin to be restored to them. But as time went on and blessings were taken for granted, hello, and God's people invariably got spoiled, then they began to worship idols, disobey the commandments, turn a deaf ear to their prophets and preachers. And God would begin to raise up voices of warning that they would ignore, and ignore, and ignore, and ignore, until God would have to begin to slowly take His hand of blessing and provision and protection off of them in a series of ever-increasingly ramped-up judgments 
would be allowed to come upon them, endeavoring to get their attention. But Israel got to a place in the land that they got so obstinate, so rebellious, so hard of heart, that God said, you're going to now lose your land. Think about this, in Jerusalem, they had God, His presence in the temple with them. In their, God lived in their capital city. He watched over their people. He made the rain to come down. He blessed their crops. He gave them victory over all their enemies. And in all of this, they rebelled against Him. And so finally He said, my hand is off of you. The glory departed. So see what happens is, they lose the presence of God. They lose the manifestations of God. And then, Nebuchadnezzar brings his army, invades Israel, and Ezekiel prophesies. Jeremiah prophesies. Many prophesy warnings. But it just fell on deaf ears. And so they went into 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel said, in the siege of Jerusalem, one-third of God's people will die by the sword. One-third of God's people will die because of pestilence and famine. And one-third of you will be carried away slaves as Babylon. So the best that you could hope for is to be carried away as a Babylonian slave. Ezekiel was. Daniel was. And so they lived in captivity in a pagan land. And will you look at the pattern and apply that to what's happened in America? It was God's providential hand, regardless of the very real mistakes we made. It was God's providential hand that this nation be raised up, be raised up. You're not going to defeat the British army with a ragtag bunch of colonialists without God's help. <laughs> okay, and the pilgrims and everything, regardless of what the history books want to say today. They made a covenant with God. They made a covenant with God. They want religious freedom. They want economic freedom. And they want a whatever. And so God blessed the nation. And raised up the nation. And we've had... Compared to the world, we live like kings. Blessed. Blessed. Tremendously. And it's been that way forever. But then you get in the 60s. And you see prayer getting kicked out of school. And they take the Bible out of school. And then they want to they legalize abortion and the killing and the shedding of innocent blood from women's wombs. And, and then you have the sexual revolution. And if it feels good, we're going to do it. We don't care. And we have just gone on and on. And in the midst of it, God had raised up the, the you know, all of the ministries. Come on. All of the ministries and all the preaching and the church on every corner. And, and all of this, and yet our nation, no, 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 no. And we are in the process. We're going to find out the final throws. Are we going to have a turning back to God? Or are we going to go into Babylonian captivity? Amen. I don't get to decide the ultimate outcome of the nation for everyone. But I have my idle, my little bitty, itty me part to play, and I'm expected to bring that part in prayer. Amen. Amen. And God's going to hold me account. So anyway, back to Ez, 
Ezra and them, they, they are now being restored. And they're coming back into the land, but they've got some mountains to, to, to deal with. And look at, look at what brought about their great deliverance. It's Ezra chapter 8, verse 21 through 23. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21 through 23. It says, then I, this is Ezra, I proclaimed a what? He didn't say I proclaimed a protest. That I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before God. To seek, I love this, this gets me almost every time I read it. To seek of Him a right way for us. And for our little ones. I don't like what the nation's doing to the little ones. And for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king, talking about the king of Persia that gave him permission to go back into the land. A band of soldiers, he, he didn't want to go, have to go back and say, I need your pagan help to, to succeed on this journey. To help us against the enemy in the way. Now, why did he not want to go back and say that? Because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all of them that for good that seek Him. How do you get the hand of God on you for good? By seeking Him. Not just by making confessions, but by seeking His face. That's how you get the hand of God on you for good. But His power and His wrath is against all them that forsake Him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and He was entreated of us. That means we interceded to Him, and it goes on, and God brought them through. They needed no pagan help. They were able to come right through all the dangers into the land. God prospered their way. You know, something's wrong when the church has got to look to a pagan government for help. We ought to not be looking to an earthly pagan king for assistance. We are not without help. We are not without power. We got all the power we could ever need, but we have to seek God. Are you seeking God about His way for you, His way for your little ones, His way for your stuff? Well, it applies to you as a family, but it also applies to us as a local family. Amen. Let's go to the last place over into the book of Joel. Joel is also... um, you know, a figure in this relative time of history. You've got to go past the, the major prophets of the Old Testament, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, get on the other side of that. <clears throat> and uh, you'll come to the little book of Joel, past Daniel, right after Hosea. And so, let's finish with this thought. Joel chapter 2. Verse number 12. Now, for time's sake, I don't want to read everything in this chapter. This chapter culminates with the promise of God pouring out His Spirit. How do you get to a place where God pours out His Spirit? Amen. And so by backing up, we'll, 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 find, that, we'll find that out. Verse number 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, 
and rend your heart and not your garments. What's he saying? You know, they had this old cultural habit of getting upset and tearing their clothes, getting up ahead, putting on a sackcloth, you know, getting upset and throwing dust, you know, throwing dust, letting them know. And God is saying, I am done with all your external stuff. I'm done with all your external ritualism. I don't want you to rend your garment. I want you to rend your heart. The word rend means tear. Tear your heart. If you know your heart's cold toward God and His program and spiritual things, you need to rend your heart. Having a wrong heart towards God is not something I can teach you out of. I can't lay my hands on you and fix that. You're going to have to call on God and acknowledge your condition. There's a lot I can do as a pastor, but I, I, can't, I can't soften your heart toward the Lord. I can't do that. So he said, rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Now why? What are, you, what are we going to find if we really turn to Him? For He is gracious, right? And merciful. He's slow to anger and of great kindness, and it repenteth Him of doing evil. Now He doesn't do evil. But the bad things that are happening to God's people are happening because they abandoned Him. And the only way He can put His hand back on them for good is if they turn and do the right thing. Who knoweth if He will return and repent? Repent means have a change of mind. That's why it's in that context He's using that word. And leave a blessing behind Him. Even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Now look at verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. That's what I'm doing tonight. Zion is a type of the church. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Amen. Man, I bet if I said, praise God, you know, tell all your friends, first Sunday in September, we're going to give away an 80-inch Samsung TV in a raffle. Oh my gosh, we'd be packed more than Jerry Seville. But if, it's, but if I said first Sunday night in September, we're going to have three hours, we're not going to eat dinner, don't eat anything after lunch, and we're going to suck carpet for three hours, and wait on God until He touches us. I wonder how many of our folks would come out. Amen. So he says, call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. And those that are breastfeeding. Uh, let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. You literally what he's saying? In this assembly, if they're on their honeymoon, call them back. I can just hear him. You can see how that... that, that that conversation goes, hey, listen, the Lord, this is Pastor. How's the honeymoon going? Going great, Pastor. Well, I heard from God, and I'm calling the sacred assembly. I blew the trumpet in Zion, and, and He told me to call you back from your honeymoon. Yeah. 
Click, click, click. Where are you? Yeah. I know how it goes. Amen. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not your heritage to reproach, that the heathen, look, should rule over them. See, if we don't respond to God's call to prayer in this hour, the end result could be the heathen. We'll find the heathen rule over, ruling over us in ways we never thought we would see. Should rule over them, wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? People are saying that all the time. Right? Christians ain't nothing. Then will the Lord be jealous for His land and pity His people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto His people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied uh, wherewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to answer your prayer, and I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to start fighting your battles for you again. I'm going to turn this for you. and No more are you going to be an embarrassment to people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. It reminds me about 2 Chronicles 7.14 where he said, If my people, if my people, and I want to end with this. Don't check out on me just yet. God, God kept bringing me back to share this thought with you. If my people, what's the first thing he said? Will humble themselves. What, what is humbling ourselves a fix for? Pride. Too proud. Too proud. I've been going fine living the way I am. <laughs> Everybody does it. La, 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 la. Whatever your excuse is. No, he said humble yourself. Humble yourself. See, before you get to pray, you have to humble yourself. We're going to have to humble ourselves and say, we're in a pickle here. And we need God's help. Man, we need, and we don't deserve God's help. We so, we better humble ourselves. What does that mean? Make yourself low before Him. And then do what these passages say. Humble yourself and pray. I'll forgive your sin. I'll hear from heaven. And then I'll heal your land. Amen. We don't have... Our nation getting turned around is not dependent on all of a sudden the dark, evil sinner having an epiphany and deciding to change their mind. God's waiting on His people. He's waiting on you. He's waiting on me. To seek His face and call on. Amen. 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 Well, stand up tonight. Praise God. Praise God.